You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Energy panel from Ocon 2021 Ayn Rand Institute Gala with Yaron Brook, Ankar Gatte, Alex Epstein, and Bud Brigham. So we're going we're gonna to do a, a panel on, on uh, energy. I just wanted to uh, really introduce it with a few comments and then jump into it. And really, what I wanted to emphasize, what I, what I want to ask you really is, what is the source of energy that moves the world? Now, I know there's a lot of people here from the oil business, and you probably all would say, well, it's oil and gas, right, bud? I mean, that's what drives the world. That's the energy source of the world. But we all know that, what was it, it you know, 200, 200 years ago, oil was worthless. What's the energy that drives the world? What's the energy that makes our energy industry possible? Well, it's the human mind. It's our capacity to reason. It's our capacity to think. Our capacity to take that black guck that's in the ground and turn it into these lights, the air conditioning, and almost every material in this room. The human mind made that possible. And there is no greater champion, in my view, of the human mind greater than Ayn Rand. And therefore, there is no greater champion of energy as we see it today, of this industry, and really all industries, because all industry depends on the human mind, than Ayn Rand. So they asked me to say a few words about the connection between Ayn Rand and energy. Well, the connection is her respect for reason. The idea that reason is a basic means of survival. It is the way in which we build this. We make everything we have around us possible. The wealth, the prosperity, the, the, the comforts that we have, and the energy that we produce today is a consequence of that. And while Ayn Rand is known as a champion of capitalism, and she certainly is, she is first and foremost a champion of the human mind. And, uh, you know, and if, if you think about Atlas Shrugged and what Atlas Shrugged is really about or how she stated the, the theme of Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Shrugged is not a political novel primarily. Atlas Shrugged is a book about the role of the mind in human life and how important the mind is for everything that we have. So one of my goals is to make that connection between Ayn Rand and the energy industry and Ayn Rand and capitalism, but always through what's really, I think, unique and interesting about Rand is that connection from capitalism, from industry to our capacity to reason, our capacity to think. Now, we all know that today the energy industry, the industry that literally powers all of this, is under unprecedented attack. Uh, widespread calls to eliminate fossil fuels, which means to eliminate lights, to eliminate our energy, um, and at the continued stagnation of, of nuclear power. So the, the, the viable sources for energy are clearly under attack. But there is, there is a movement. There's a growing movement of energy champions 
who armed with the pro-human philosophy, a pro-reason philosophy, a pro-mind philosophy, uh, and, a, and a deep command of the facts about energy, about the environment, about climate, uh, slowly but steadily, you know, winning the hearts and minds of people all over this country and hopefully all over the world. So today I'm going to be talking to three people who've been part of this growing movement of energy champions to talk about the intellectual challenges facing the energy industry and how ARI, the Ayn Rand Institute, can help create a new generation of energy champions, champions for the industry. And I know many of you here are part of that industry. So first of all, let me say, I should have said this in the beginning, thank you for providing me with my electricity and with all the wonderful goods that I consume on a regular basis. Thank you for those of you who are in this industry, who work hard, and, and who suffer some of these attacks that are constantly barged upon you. Uh, I, you know, I, I wish we lived in a society that instead of condemning you guys, was thanking you on a daily basis, because you deserve many, many thanks for the hard work that you put in. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to introduce our three panelists. Uh, the first is uh, Alex Epstein, uh, who's widely regarded as the world's leading champion of fossil fuels. He's author of the New York Times best-selling uh, bestseller, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and author of the forthcoming book, Fossil Future, uh, published by Penguin in 2022. So uh, don't forget to buy copies when it comes out. Um, <laughs> I don't know how well known this fact is, but Alex's work on energy began at the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, where he worked as a right-hand fellow from 2004 to 2011 before founding the Center for Industrial Progress. So thank you, Alex, for joining us tonight. Yeah. Uh, ne next to him, I have Ankar Gatte, uh, who is the chief philosophy officer at the Ayn Rand Institute and head of ARI's Objectivist Academic Center where we train students and profes uh, professionals in objectivist philosophy and Ayn Rand's philosophy, uh, the thinking methodology as well as effective communication. Uh, Alex has publicly credited Ankar uh, many times for being the biggest influence on how he thinks about energy issues. So thank you, Ankar, for being here. And, <laughs> and I'll just say one of the things that I'm, uh, I'm most proud of uh, as uh, in my tenure as uh, the CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute, is I hired both of these guys. <laughs> so, uh... Finally, I have Bud Brigham, uh, a very successful entrepreneur and CEO in the oil and gas industry. Bud has founded several successful companies, including uh, Brigham Exploration, Brigham Resources, Brigham Minerals, and Atlas Sand. And if you don't know what Atlas Sand has to do with anything, like sand, then ask Bud or one of the people who work for him around here because it's a fascinating story. Bud is an outspoken CEO, in both, uh, is both an energy champion himself as well as a major supporter of energy education and energy freedom efforts. And Bud is also a major supporter of the Ayn Rand Institute. So thank you, Bud, for being here and for <laughs> sponsoring all of this. Uh, so, Bud, I'm going to start with you. Um, why are you so passionate about the energy industry? I mean, to the point that you continue to work in it, in spite of all the challenges. Um, 
and you've had several successful exits. You've done well. You don't have to work for a living, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, you've devoted a lot of time uh, and advocating energy yourself and supporting energy education and energy freedom efforts. So why? Well, I mean, really, it's pretty simple. I love what I do. And um, I love to create value. I love to build, maybe a little like Hank Reardon. Um, but it was about 15 years ago that, that you know, while I, I was doing what I do, that I, I realized that it was all at risk, that, that, that subsequent generations may not have the opportunity to do what I do. And, um, and uh, so that's when I got engaged. Um. So what do you see as the biggest opportunity for the, uh, for the energy to improve human life around the world? And what do you see as the biggest threats today to the industry? Well, I mean, if you look back over the last 15 years, it's really incredible what our industry has done. Um, you know, the shale renaissance disrupted the whole world in terms of oil supplies. We added 8 million barrels a day of production domestically. I would have never dreamed that we could do that. It's, it's really incredible. And, um, and, it's, um, uh, and it made the world a safer place. Um, it also, interestingly, um, we dr actually drove down emissions for those concerned about emissions. Um, um, you know, when you, when you innovate, you become more efficient. Uh, you drive up efficiency, you drive down costs, and you drive down um, uh, energy usage, emissions, etc. And natural gas became a more efficient uh, fuel than coal, displaced it, and the U.S. actually drove down its emissions, while Europe, subject to government coercion, carbon tax, etc., saw emissions continue to rise and saw energy costs rise as well. Alex talks very effectively about that a lot. So, so. Um, there's one thing that I don't think that people realize about oil and gas, and, and that is, um, you know, why did it happen in the United States? Why didn't, why didn't it happen around the world? I mean, obviously, we have mostly free markets. Uh, we, most, we have good rule of law. But there's really one element that differentiates the U.S., and that is private property rights, that we are the only country, and thank you to our founding fathers, where the people own the minerals. And not, not, you know, the feds own some and the states own some, but we own most of them. And that's powerful. That, that is freedom and economic power that's vested with the people. Because I can tell you, I worked in France. I worked, and we've explored Australia, South America. There are shell plays around the world. But you think about, like, I'm, my wife and I visited France a long time ago. We were talking about it earlier. You know, those people are so disenfranchised from that economic value. It's like, we don't want those trucks running around here. Um, um, so that's a real blessing that we have here. And, it's, and, it, and it comes down to property rights. And, and really, that's what is, is under attack here today and, in terms of, um, you know, those out uh, discriminating against fossil fuels. It's, it's really an attack on property rights. And I'll, I'll finish up this answer by talking uh, briefly about ESG. Yeah. Uh, for those familiar with ESG it's, um, or not familiar, it's environment, social, and governance. And it's very problematic for the industry now. It's affecting capital allocation very negatively, very irrationally, um, and uh, it's, it's creating distortions and problems. Um, really what ESG is when you analyze it is it's elevating E and S, environment and social, above governance. Because when you think about governance, what it is most fundamentally, it is property rights. It's... it's it, it gets back to the Friedman Doctrine. When you're managing an enterprise, you're working for the owners. And your fundamental role is to create value for the owners. And when we started our first company, we knew that to do that, 
we had to take care, good care of our employees. We had to be good stewards of the communities we operate in. We had to be good stewards of the environment we operate in. If we did not do that, we could not accumulate profits over the longer term. And we've done that, and so we've had success. But now it's elevating ENS above G to the point that you see analysts even writing editorials that we've got to convince these companies that it's not about the owners anymore. It's about whatever their special interest is, whatever their goal, and they're not even legitimate stakeholders. Um, so, you know, our stakeholders win in our country is that I call it the harmony of capitalism. We have the cleanest air and water of any major country in the world, and it's because of capitalism. But it's very much under attack with ESG, and as Greg Salmeri said, it's really it's a politicization of commercial enterprises, and it's a, a very bad, a very dangerous threat. So, as as Bud mentioned, and and um, as uh, as I think you all know, there are a lot of threats to the future of energy. Uh, there are also some hopeful signs, uh, including, Alex, your success at, at making them all case for fossil fuel. Uh, could you tell the audience a little about what influence you've been uh, able to have on energy conservation, uh, conservation conservation? Not much on yeah. conservation. Yeah, not a big conver no. conservation guy. But on the, on the energy conversation so far, and, and are you optimistic? And if so, what makes you optimistic? Uh, yeah, so very excited uh, to be here. I always love to be able to talk about Ayn Rand and, and the benefits that those ideas have had uh, for me. So let me just be pessimistic for a second. I mean, I just want to stress, like, right now, I would say the number one moral goal in the world, if you look at governments, if you look at corporations, is the rapid elimination of fossil fuels which I regard as like a complete apocalypse if it happened. And not only is that the moral goal, but there's also widespread opposition to nuclear, widespread opposition to large-scale hydro, and I'll talk about this in my talk uh, on Wednesday, there's also significant opposition to solar and wind in practice, as in you're not actually allowed to do the mining, you're not allowed to build the transmission lines, you're not actually allowed to build it increasingly, because this, this core idea that exists, which is that we shouldn't impact nature, and I believe that that idea, that our moral goal should be to eliminate our impact on nature, is driving the world and is the reason why our overwhelming concrete moral goal is eliminate fossil fuels or eliminate emissions. So, like, I just want to stress, it's really, really bad. And so there can be a question of, okay, well, why be optimistic? And I basically become optimistic about things if they're performing well at a small scale, if they're growing fast, and if I don't see any real impediment to them growing faster. And that's, that's what I see as this moral movement in favor of fossil fuels that I think I've helped start. Uh, I got started on energy in 2007. You're on when I was younger was always saying like specialize, specialize, specialize. Like I don't want to specialize. I'm not interested in anything concrete. I just love philosophy. But like I became obsessed with energy because I realized, oh, this is the industry that powers every other industry. And I could really see by reading the history of energy how ideas shaped that. And I thought, oh, I would like to get involved in that. If you look at 2007, there was no moral argument for fossil fuels. Like, there was no moral movement in favor of fossil fuels. There are a handful of people who said occasionally a good thing, but it just it didn't exist. Um, the way the whole issue was framed was basically all around this issue of climate. So it's either you believe in climate change and you, or we, you believe we impact climate and that's a catastrophe, we need to get rid of fossil fuels, or you believe we have no impact and it's a hoax and therefore fossil fuels are okay. 
but it was just framed in this totally wrong way. And I think what I and some others have done is reframe it and say, no, that's the wrong way of looking at it. You can't just look at the potential negative side effects of something. You have to look at the full context. You have to look at the full context in relation to human flourishing, which includes you have to look at the benefits of fossil fuels. And so if you fast forward to today, I call this perspective like energy humanism. If you fast forward to today, not only have I had a lot of success with the moral case for fossil fuels, one of the best-selling energy books of the last decade, um, I have now advised something like 140 elected officials and staff on messaging. Um, there's sort of a lot of things with me personally, but what's most exciting to me is that there are other people doing this. So, for example, in the last year, we've had three blockbuster books that are energy humanist books, a book called Apocalypse Never by Michael Schellenberger, a book called False Alarm by Bjorn Lomborg, and a book called Unsettled by Steve Koonin. And so you're seeing this more and more, and we're starting to see like energy humanists pop up. Like there's one in Africa, there's one in India, there's one in the Bitcoin world. And so it's very exciting to me that this approach that I've been taking and popularizing is being spread. We have some people here from Life Powered, which is a group that Bud helped start, including Brent Bennett, who's a rising star who's in the, uh, who's in the audience. And that's another group, their, their whole focus is energy humanism. It's really the first kind of big nonprofit energy humanist organization. So to me, it's very exciting that this is proliferating. It's exciting to me that myself, I'm finding there's so much room to improve. I still feel like I'm about 20% of my persuasive potential. I hope that Fossil Future brings me to 35 or 40% uh, of, of what's possible. And the other thing that gives me confidence is so we're growing and nobody really opposes us. So just an example of this is there are two CEOs who are energy humanists, one who's really explicitly been influenced by moral case named Adam Anderson. And he had this campaign against the North Face this year. And what happens is so the North Face basically said, we're not going to sell you jackets because we don't want to be associated with oil and gas. And so he wrote this open letter and it got covered by Newsweek, Wall Street Journal, everyone. And what did the North Face have to say? They're so confident they had nothing to say. Another guy named Chris Wright brought up the issue. They had nothing to say. And this is what I find. These people have no, the anti-impact, the anti-fossil uh, anti fuel movement, they have no real response. Their response is to ignore us or occasionally to straw man us. And so to me, the fact that these ideas are becoming more prominent and there's no real opposition and there's huge room for improvement, that makes me optimistic. And then the final thing I'll say is, I think we're going to uh, talk in a minute about the influence of objectivism in ARI. But I think ARI can have a big role in this um, because that has had a huge role uh, in my own thinking and my own action. So hopefully I get a chance to talk about that. But that's why I'm optimistic. Thank you. I, I just noticed there's a the, the relief here of um, the Federalists, right? You've got Hamilton, Madison, oh. you know, and, and uh, Jay, John Jay, uh, the Federalist. And you talked about private property and we talked about the ideas that made America so special and made this energy revolution. Those guys, they're the ones responsible. And that, by the way, would look great on somebody's wall. <laughs> in somebody's house. I mean, that would be perfect, right? All right, Alex, uh, you, you led right into the next question. So how did objectivism in general, and in particular your time at AOI, um, help you become so influential? Yes, yeah, so I think... From the beginning of discovering objectivism, like my, I told this story a couple years ago, like my first exposure to Ayn Rand was reading the letters of Ayn Rand, and she had this letter to Barry Goldwater, and just blew me away how she could clarify, she clarified to me the idea that you don't want to be a conservative, and the founding fathers weren't conservative, they were revolutionary, it doesn't make sense to be something 
before something because it's old. You want to be for something because it's good. And I just like, oh, I never thought about that. And it really made this impression that this person has a unique way of thinking clearly. And my theory was that anyone who adopted this would sort of have this huge artificial advantage. And there was this sort of at odds with some of the perspectives that intellectuals had at the time, which was like, oh, this is a cross to bear. Like, you have these crazy ideas, and so nobody's going to listen to you. But I felt like, no, this is going to enable me to have a new level of clarity that's going to be really illuminating to people. And I think you've seen this, for example, in education, all sorts of people doing great things in, ed in education using objectivist ideas. Um, so anyway, I had this, this conviction, and then... Um, you know, at ARI, again, I got interested in energy, and I was really fortunate to be at ARI at the time, and particularly with uh, Ankar, who hopefully won't blush too much when I talk about some of the things. But I'll just give you one example of like a conversation that we had one day that totally changed my life. So it was 2011, and we were doing an Earth Day episode of Power Hour, which is this new podcast that I had started 10 years ago. And uh, this is not an exact transcript of what happened because we didn't record it, but I remember Ankar said like, Look, the usual way of doing this is we talk about how the environmentalists have made all these false catastrophe predictions and they've been wrong and they're really anti-human. I'm like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And he said, no, like, let's not do that. Let's talk about how industry has made the world an amazing human environment, an amazing place for human beings to live. And it was just this idea that, wait a second, industry improves our environment. You know, subsequently, I've sort of become famous for talking about this, including you know, how industry makes us safer from climate. This is something I first learned from Keith Lockett, who I think is here. But um, you know, the idea that fossil fuels don't take a safe climate and make it dangerous, they take a dangerous climate and make it safe. Or fossil fuels don't take a clean environment and make it dirty, they take a dirty environment and make it clean. So just this, this one example among many but just this whole shift in perspective. And I think it was possible because he had, I think I have a good understanding of objectivism, but he had a better understanding. And so he could look at how we were thinking about environment and say, we're looking at environment in an anti-human way. This is not an objectivist, pro-human way to look at environment. And here's what it is. And when I started doing that, it just exploded. And it's still like one of my claims to fame is making this point that I got from objectivism in general and Ankar in particular, and then I would just also say that he's helped, I've gotten to work with him on, I got to work with Greg Salmieri on, uh, on Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and I've gotten to work with Ankar on Fossil Future, and it's been like probably the fastest two years of development I've ever had have been the last uh, two years. That's great. So Ankar, uh, since Alex is a successful energy champion, mm -hmm. uh, and credits you with a lot of his success, um, how do you think... Uh, how do you think of the value that objectivism offers to anyone wanting to become an effective energy champion? Um, yeah, it helps you rethink the whole issue. So I think we live, I mean, we should think of it as we live in an episode of the Twilight Zone. That, I mean, I really think that, that we live at a time where the world has never been better. There's never been more people enjoying a higher standard of living and having enormous potential to live a better life. And yet the whole world, and particularly the developed world, thinks we're living at a time that, oh, we have 10 years to live and we're going to die. And it, like, it has no relationship to reality. Like, it's not even close. And what objectivism helps you see, it helps you see that fact and it helps you see why that fact exists. What is going wrong? What I think uh, objectivism helps you do 
it two, it's two fundamental things, but if you really learn these things, it colors how you think about everything. It teaches you to value better, and it teaches you to think better. And the valuing that you get from Ayn Rand, and if you've read Atlas Shrugged, this is like all over Atlas Shrugged. The, the, like as a species, mankind has developed in the last 400 years through basically three revolutions. The scientific revolution, um, and you can think of Newton as sort of the, at the center of that, but there's a lot of people coming before him, a lot of people coming after him. The political revolution, which you can think of the, like it's at its height in the creation of the U.S. and, and people like the author of The Federalist. So we've had a scientific revolution, a political revolution, which together lead to an industrial revolution. Uh, revolution. And these three revolutions have transformed the world. And it's really only Ayn Rand who takes these three, all of them, seriously, sees the interconnection to them. And particularly, I want to stress, she's the only real philosophic thinker who champions the Industrial Revolution and everything about the revolution. So you can, I think of Atlas Shrugged, one way to look at it is that it's an ode to the Industrial Revolution and it gives the people who created that both a voice and a thank you that they've never got from any intellectuals or moralists. And if you think like that, that it's the people who've brought us the Industrial Revolution, they've transformed life, they're the benefactors who have made a really human existence possible, your whole value structure changes. One of the lines that I like best in um, Atlas Shrugged comes late in the novel, and it's, it says, and it's really a message to the readers, it's, what you need to learn is to stand at reverent attention at the achievement of man's mind, or the achievements of man's mind, and reverent attention. Reverent is a concept, reverence, that most people think of. It belongs to religion, it belongs to the hereafter. And her view is, no, it belongs here. It's the achievement of man's mind, and what achievements that have never been appreciated is achievements of people like Bud, who are businessmen, who are part of the Industrial Revolution, and who have brought us like an undreamt of prosperity. And Ayn Rand stresses this, and you're really learning what she has to teach. That's one of the things you learn. And then the other thing that you learn is you learn to think better, and particularly the words and the concepts that we use determine our thinking, or they shape it in a fundamental way. And she calls them tools of cognition. They're tools of understanding. And she means that comparison pretty literally. So if you think like a workman with his tools on a work site, if his tools are bad, if he's got a rusty saw, a nail gun that shoots nails off to the side, and so he can't build well, he can't construct things. And then if you have people sabotaging his tools, and Ayn Rand's view is like this happens all the time, that people deliberately sabotage the tools. You can't think, just as a workman, if, you're, if someone's sabotaging his tools, he can't build anything. If someone's sabotaging the tools by which you're trying to think, you can't think straight. And all the terms in environmentalism, basically, are tools that are deliberately sabotaged. Um, the environment is a confusion between, oh, what we need is wilderness where no human being can survive, or we're about the environment for a human being. But that's a totally different environment than wilderness. And if you put these together and you try to think with the environment, so you can't think. And if you go down the line of every concept that they're using, like pollution, 
include smog and shopping malls. Like one is bad for life and one advances life. If you put those together and think, oh, what do we do about pollution? You can't think. And objectivism really stresses that and helps you clarify your thought. And if you're able to do those two, to think well and have the right values, you can be a real um, champion for the good. Can I just tell one quick story about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, so both of these things, I was coming to my examples of what I had with Ankar. So just in terms of the, like the Twilight Zone thing he said, that's one thing I love working about about working with him is he has this perspective, and Ayn Rand had this perspective, where they can really see the world from the objectivist pro-human perspective like consistently. I remember one thing we were talking on with Fossil Future is he was just pointing out like, Alex, the way you're looking at CO2, like you still have some of the bias that human impact is bad. Like I was just sort of taking it as, yeah, of course we should assume that CO2 is making things worse. And it's just been really clarifying, no, it could be, but you cannot assume that at all, particularly if you think, okay, it grows plants, which is really important, and it tends to have warming in colder parts of the world, and most people want it to be warmer. And it was just, <laughs> even as much as I am an objectivist and I've been thinking about this for so many years, I still had that anti-human bias. Like, I grew up in the twilight zone, and I'm trying to get myself out of it, but, like, he's really good <laughs> at getting people out of it. And then another one, we've had so many conversations about individual concepts, including the ones he mentioned, but also, like, renewable energy. I remember when I was at ARI, and I was just, I was using that term. He's like, why are you using that term? It doesn't make any sense. That's not a scientific term. That's not an economic term. It's completely incoherent. And now, of course, I've become like, people think, oh, it's so smart when Alex Epstein explains. It doesn't make any sense. Renewable energy is not a valid concept, and I've become somewhat famous for using the derogatory term unreliables to describe solar and wind, but it is a much more accurate term uh, than renewable. So it's just, you know, that moral clarity and that conceptual clarity, like, so important. And it's why I'm, part of the reason I came here is you want people to be trained by the best people in that. And if, if you have the people who know how to make use of that, it's really powerful. So I, 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 what I take credit for is, like, I knew like the value that he had and the value that objectivism had, and like I've aggressively pursued it, and I keep pursuing it and trying to get better uh, with it. Yeah, and that and the, the cognitive errors <clears throat> that uh, Anka you just mentioned, I mean they apply completely to ESG. E means nothing, <laughs> S means nothing, G means yeah. nothing. They don't mean anything the way they're being used. Yeah, they might have a meaning if properly understood, but the way they're being used, they're all package deals that are meaningless. And, uh, and uh, you know, these guys are excellent at pointing that out and, and, and bringing, pointing us towards the truth. Uh, so, Bud, you know, I'll, I'll ask you the same thing I asked Anka. Uh, what do you think are the keys to becoming an effective energy champion? Well, um, I, I, I can break it up in two parts. I mean, a number of us here are in the energy uh, industry, and... I think it is, um, individuals in our industry tend to be nose down, a very, you know, um, not, very, um, not very political, not very, we just want to find oil and gas, we just want to create, and, but we've got the benefit of a lot of knowledge in science. For example, I'm a geophysicist, we have geologists, we, we understand Earth's history, um, the, um, uh, the history of CO2, that it's low relative to historical uh, when life has done well. The climate's always changed, it always will. Um, and, and we have, um, um, uh, so we've got to get more engaged uh, as an industry. And that's one of the things that 
Brent and the Light Power Group has been doing is to get our industry more engaged because we've got to stand up and and Alex has been instrumental for us and 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 invaluable for us in standing up and in 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 engaging and and instead of just being on the defensive and capitulating, getting out and and be being offensive. Um, but the other thing is, if you're not um, if you're not a geophysicist like me, or if you're not in the industry and don't have that knowledge. You know, just to, to study, to, to don't accept the prevailing narrative uh, narratives out there. The the um, to, to do your own research, and uh, I mean, look at Alex. He came from a non oil and gas uh, background, and now he's the leading intellectual on energy thinking. I mean, it's really remarkable. So I think cl clearly um, objectivism um, is is um, provides a real provides the tools and the skills to be able to to be an energy champion and. Um, just to get engaged and do it. So one thing that occurred to me that, um, you know, I think ARI focuses on a lot in its programs is, you know, what Leonard Peikoff would call objective communication. And that, by the way, that's my favorite. I love his courses, and I, I, man, I drank those things in college when you had to pay a lot of money for them, and I had very little money. But I would eat, like, tuna fish and lentils so I could take Leonard Peikoff's courses. So go to the Ayn Rand University because they're free now. Um, but I remember, like, it just made this point that, like, part of objective communication is you communicate something in a way that's self-contained to the audience. So just based on what they say, they can go from where they are to where you want them to be. And, like, building, a, I call it context bridging now, like, you build the context from, like, context A where they are to context B where you want them to be. And I, I think that's such a revolutionary thing in objectivism because there's a real idea of what knowledge is, what steps you need to take to give someone knowledge. And I find that it's really, it's really rare that you find anyone who can actually persuade someone of something new. Like most persuasion is liberals persuading liberals and conservatives persuading conservatives. Um, but it's really rare to have somebody who can take someone who's starting out expecting to disagree with you and move them toward what you think is the truth. And so the proudest moments I have are when people say, like, I was a communist, and I agree with you. <laughs> I was an environmentalist. I thought this. Like, one of the guys who helped me, I have this site, energytalkingpoints.com. The guy who helped me with it was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016 and now is volunteering his time to create an energytalkingpoints.com. So I think this ability to actually persuade people who expect to disagree with you, that objective communication is that superpower, and I know that's one thing ARIs focus on a lot in their programs. Thanks, Alex. Anko, so since we just talked about ARI, what is ARI in particular in, in the AOC, the Objective Academic Center? OAC. What did I say? AOC. Yeah, AOC. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really uh, <laughs> doing a great job here at uh, Conservation and AOC. Yeah, yeah. I'm a spy. Yeah. <laughs> I've been captured. <laughs> so what are ARI and Objectives to Academic Center's plans uh, to create more Alexes, to create more uh, defenders of, of capitalism, business, and, and energy? Yeah, if you were at Tal's presentation earlier today, but I know many people weren't, um, so we're trying to dramatically expand our training programs. So the OAC is basically, um, you can think of it as education for kind of undergraduate level students. That's a program that I've been involved in and running. I started it at the Institute. Um, what we're doing, so we're keeping that component, we're trying to really beef up the, the incoming funnel. So we had some stuff about the books for teachers and the essay contest but to really kind of mine the people who get ignited by Atlas Shrugged and by Ayn Rand 
and to push them along in the journey or help them along in the journey such that they want to get to the level that, yeah, when I'm at the level of kind of an undergraduate, I want to really explore Ayn Rand's ideas in more depth. And then we're trying to really expand kind of a graduate level training of people who, yeah, this is a career that I want, a career like, say, Alex has. What is the knowledge you need to gain? What are the skills you need to gain? How can we network you into the growing number of people who are interested in Rand's ideas and um, kind of furthering them into the culture, communicating them? So the, uh, I mean, we're trying to expand like double every year for the next five or 10 years. Uh, and if we do that, then I hope to see that there'll be five Alexes coming out of the OAC and then 10 uh, Alexes. And, and it's not just, I mean, our focus isn't just energy, but we're interested in anyone who's interested in these kind of cultural battles and trying to help people really understand the right ideas and how to think about them and the right values and then are passionate about communicating them to people. So uh, we're getting close to we're getting close to our time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have the last question to you, Bud. Uh, you've been a, a great financial supporter of uh, of objectivist causes, and the pro energy causes, of course. What motivates you to continue to do this, and what are you most excited about going forward? Well, um, each of us, you know, individually, we only have so much time and so much capital. So I think about both in terms of you know what's what's the most productive way for me to invest both and and there's and and you know there's no question that that in terms of influencing people i mean just look at these individuals look at Yaron and alex and Ankar, and look at guys like greg Samari, and and then uh, uh, i can tell you in in the energy industry a lot of the leaders and, and alex mentioned a couple of them, guys like chris wright um uh, guys like uh, scott tinker um, who's in academia? They were very much influenced by by Ayn, and uh, and and, it, and and so th there's no question. This is the the fertile ground for us to 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 compound, um, uh, you know, uh, reason and um, and uh, and to make a difference and and to have it. So it, it, that's that's why I'm here and invested as much as I am. Well, we appreciate it and yeah. and, and thank you and. Um, Anka, Alex, any final, final, short thoughts? <laughs> if you've got the money, please support ARI. There you go. <laughs> That's a perfect short thought. Um, yeah, I just want to thank, um, again, really happy to be here. I hope that ARI gets a lot of contributions, and I'm, you know, I'm really excited for as many people as possible to get the advantages I got. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, ARI is great. I think Ankar in particular is a very special individual, and I'm sort of eternally grateful to what he's meant to me. So I'm really excited that, that we're going to have exponentially more people uh, getting that, uh, that education and that empowerment. All right. So, hey, by the way, this is what happens when you give me a script. <laughs> I screw up. <laughs> Just let me go. Come on, guys. Um, we wouldn't get a word in. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Join me in thanking these guys for a terrific job. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, 
go to aynrand.org.